0: Welcome to Episode 1 of the Countermeasures Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Smith.
1: Countermeasures are tactics deployed to keep on mission in the face of adversity. Modern living offers multiple avenues for distraction to keep you from living your best this podcast shares the countermeasures you need to keep you on your path the interviews are with people with practical knowledge and experience who share their value-laden stories and insights the host draws from years of experience ranging from overcoming a decade of chronic illness to operating at the highest levels of mental and physical fitness in the world of close protection Throughout his career and his private life, he has seen how poor life choices can be just as dangerous as the more obvious threats, and sets out to help listeners achieve better outcomes in their lives.
0: I first heard about Tony Newman when a colleague recommended a new security training company in town with some really highly regarded instructors. So we both fired up and attended courses, and they were run by Tony and his colleague, and they were both great. I heard he'd opened a gym through the grapevine. And when my girlfriend at the time wanted to get more serious about training, I recommended him to her and he ended up coaching her. We ended up keeping in contact because I trained intermittently with them around my work schedule and then one night Tony ended up coming over for dinner with his fantastic wife Joy. The dinner conversation eventually turned to the time Tony was jailed in the Philippines on charges to assassinate the president. As you can imagine, I had to inquire some more. In this podcast, you'll hear how Tony grew up an active child of 10 siblings, became a successful entrepreneur, opened a bodyguard training facility in the Philippines, was arrested by corrupt government officials for, as I said, attempting to assassinate the president of the Philippines amongst a lot of other things, and then lived in Manila for a year surrounded by bodyguards with a contract on his life. When Tony returned to Australia, he opened the gym and helps others with their nutrition. Tony was one of the first people I wanted to interview on this podcast because his life experiences, combined with a passion for helping others, is inspirational and full of great lessons. My key takeaways are that finding reasons to help others is a good countermeasure for depression, breaking down large goals into a series of smaller goals and achieving them is a good countermeasure to being overwhelmed, and that body composition is 80% nutrition and the countermeasure for obesity is managing carbohydrate intake. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I present Mr. Tony Newman. Hi, Tony. Thanks very much for coming in today and being the first interview person for the Countermeasures podcast.
2: Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here.
0: And we are pretty much just going to get straight into it by uh, asking you about your going right back in time, right back to the beginning and asking about your childhood years.
2: Okay. Well, um... I guess I had a childhood pretty much like you know most other people. I, I, I'm from New Zealand, so I grew up in New Zealand, a semi sort of rural area. Um, used to have to walk a couple of k's to school every day. And I grew up in a, a, quite a big family. Um, there mm. were ten, 10 kids, so it was a pretty interesting household yeah. at yeah. times. Um, I was just kind of down the younger end, so yeah. a lot of my brothers and sisters were a lot older than me. But it was a bit like the Waltons when I was a kid. I'm an only child
0: and i can't even imagine 10 kids i'm not sure how that would affect you, you know your social dynamic growing up you know being in you know kind of is it like a pecking order uh,
2: at the dinner table, it was different. <laughs> Otherwise, you didn't really see the you didn't really see the rest of the most of the day because we're all different ages. But right. uh, dinner time was a bit of a challenge. That's for sure. Yeah, especially if you were the younger one. Yeah, scraps, <laughs> scraps. That's it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so New Zealand, semi rural, large family, and then school,
2: high school. Y- yeah. Uh, all the normal things, school, high school. Um, was involved in all the usual things with sport. Yeah, like you know most Kiwi kids by the, the time. I was five I started at a primary school and started playing rugby and yeah. played rugby right through school, a little bit of rugby league. Yep. Um and then I guess in my late teens, early twenties, I, I kind of fell into the sport of orienteering. Oh, right, so, Yeah, yep. so uh map and map and compass running. There's obviously yeah. a lot of bush and a lot of forests in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a pretty amazing place. Spent quite a bit of time with the orienteering and then fell into triathlon. Okay. That's kind of the next thing, when, when triathlons were a big thing in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you, all the way uh, through school and uh, I guess into your late teens, it was a lot of kind of sport and fitness-based stuff yeah, going
2: on. Yeah, all the usual sport and fitness type stuff. Was never really great at school, did okay. Um, struggled a bit in high school, actually dropped out of high school probably when I was around 17 or 18. Right, Probably took me about six months to realise that it was the wrong thing to do, but <laughs> right <laughs> laid okay. laid the foundations. So. Did you get a job in that time? Uh, I virtually yeah. It's really interesting. I've never really been unemployed in my life. I think yeah. I, I dropped out of school and I, I had a job within two days. And i right. have never had a period where I haven't really worked.
0: Did you go back to school after realising the error?
2: Um. Yeah, but you know, not until not until I was in my early forties and oh, had right. been kind of well established in business um, for a while, I, I sort of felt that in order to grow the business that I was involved in, which you know took me overseas on a lot of trips and things, I felt like I needed to do a little bit more. So, for whatever reason, I actually went back to university and did an MBA.
0: Right, in right. Forties consolidated formal training. In your forty, so you have working in business for a while. So, I guess that's really just a, almost like a, a formal uh, confirmation of what you've been doing by that stage.
2: Yeah, I I I I guess I'd always been really entrepreneurial, even from from a young kid. Um, it didn't take me long after leaving school, and I, like I went through a few different jobs. I tried my hand at labouring. Yeah, uh, you know, I worked as a farm hand. Um, eventually, uh, f- uh, Got a position as a what they used to call a management cadet in those days with yeah. a big logistics company, yep. um, and sort of spent a couple of years working my way up the ladder there. Um, but it wasn't long before I realised that my path was to own my own business and yeah. you know, cause control my own destiny, if you will. Mm. So I, I, I think by the time I was sort of in my mid twenties, I was in business. Was that your business? Yes, it was. Yeah, right. it was my business. Yeah,
0: yep. yeah. And what field was that?
2: Um, I, look, I started out with a little bit of importing. I was importing right. some, um, I guess you'd call them fast-moving consumer goods, yep. into the market in New Zealand. Um, from there, I went into, I fell into an industry called the licensing industry and became a marketing consultant.
0: There's a bit of a leap between uh, your involvement with the Progressive Force Concepts organisation and uh, importing. How was that
2: transition for you? Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting story. I'd started doing martial arts in my sort of late 20s, early 30s, and I really enjoyed a lot of the aspects of martial arts, particularly the discipline and the fitness um, side of it. So um, having started out with... um, doing martial arts in in New Zealand, I was involved with a form of very orthodox karate. Yeah. Was that kai cushion or something? uh, Shotokan. Oh, Shotokan karate. I think, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I really loved the discipline side of it. Yeah. I really loved the physical side of it. It was something that I wasn't getting from my, my business life. By that stage, I'd sort of... Done the whole triathlon, orienteering, which are running. pretty
0: solo pursuits, really.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it yeah, and um, really enjoyed the camaraderie of the karate and the club there. But in the early two thousands, I moved from I moved my base of operations from Auckland to Melbourne. And once I was here and settled, I'd sort of looked around at the martial arts clubs, and I developed some interesting thoughts by then on the relevance of karate in yes. terms of. Is it really real self defence? Could you really use it on the street? Yeah, um, and I guess I'd, I'd witnessed a few incidents in the streets where I knew people who were very experienced at karate, were very good at what they did, but the moment they got into a situation on the street, yeah. they just reverted back to the good old haymaker. And, <laughs> yeah, nothing like, beats all that, that kind of went big out bomb the haymaker.
0: That's kind that's of what it.
2: that's what people do revert to in, that, in to under duress. Right, that, totally. yeah Yeah, totally and i just didn't see any of the skills come out so i guess i questioned really what the long-term value was of karate and um i wanted to do something so i kept looking around and i found a guy actually here in melbourne who had a martial arts background but he was teaching a style that he called close quarter combat right and it was kind of a combination of a bit like some mixed martial arts, but also some defensive tactics that yes. he'd learnt while he was living in the in the US, and he'd trained with a, a guy who who was a, a trainer of law enforcement and military in the US. Right. Okay. Hmm. So more of a reality based defence, street based defence. Yeah, street based defence. A lot, a lot of very uh, orientated towards uh, law enforcement. So right. it's not really about sort of standing there and trying to slug it out with somebody, but trying to s- stop the fight quickly yeah um, and you know bring it to an end quickly so
0: yeah I guys uh, got involved with craft Maga because of the same yeah. reasons like yeah. I, I got the I've done um, defensive tactics working private security industry yeah. and I um, Krav Magar really appealed to me in terms of, I guess, ending things quickly or rather than winning a fight or yeah. getting away if that's what yeah. the outcome of safety is and, and uh, actually working under pressure, uh, yeah. so training under yeah. pressure or realistic circumstances, whether it's on a, a moving bus or in a simulated nightclub or something like yeah. that, yeah. yeah. So I, I completely can relate. I did Japanese jiu-jitsu for a while as well and kickboxing, but same kind of deal where I was kind of attracted to Krav Maga because just that kind of the street practicality of it really yep. appealed. Yeah. So I can definitely relate to that close quarters combat style yep. of, of training. I think especially if you've worked in private security and oh, definitely police policing, but um, you see what works and what doesn't work and what's legacy from thousands of years and what's, what's practical.
2: Yeah. So from uh, martial arts. Yeah. So from martial arts to close quarter combat. And um, I spent actually a little bit of time in America with a company called Progressive Force Concepts. Yeah. And it was was an interesting time in my life. Uh, My business in Australia was doing really, really well, but I'd been... Uh, involved in it for nearly 20 years. Mm. I guess I was a little bit burnt out. My life partner at the time actually passed away. Right. And so I was sort of heading through a bit of a, or yeah, going through a, huge. Bit of a bit of a midlife crisis. And I found this company in, in America called Progressive Force Concepts. I went over and did a little bit of training with them, got to know the owner of the organization really well. We became friends. He invited me to come back and do some of the other courses that they ran. So as a background, Progressive Force Concepts is a large, uh, it's a large now, it's a large privately owned uh, company who offer training to uh, current serving law enforcement and current serving military Mm. um, and also provide training for private security so there's two parts to their business. One is the training, uh, the the training business, and they offer a myriad of different courses for different purposes. And then the other side of their business is called PFC Safeguards, and they operate um, bodyguarding operations mostly through North America, but also Europe and Asia.
0: Okay, so the, so there's a couple of different components to PFC training. Yeah. Was it like private military, and then like the the bodyguard?
2: Was that the three? areas uh, yeah so yeah the the, the military though wasn't private it was the US military, military. so they yeah. were they're, they're a provider to the United States government they provide training to it's mostly um, the United States Air Force right where they provide training for certain uh, military units certain units within the US Air Force. Their the, the military uh, training operation with that with that program they developed a series of programs that would be seen as a pre-deployment program. Right. So often in the uh, U.S. military, it's so big they have you know many different units that may have been based at home in the U.S. for two or three years. Then all of a sudden they get called up for deployment to wherever it is, more typically recently it's been in sort of Middle East. And then that unit for six months before it's deployed all gets spun up in terms of its capability and resources. Um, and as part of that, they get sent to different training schools for some advanced training right. just prior to, to deployment.
0: Well, it kind of seems strange that you would have outsourced to private companies. You think the military would have that stuff in-house that there wouldn't need to be a private Training facility f- for that. I Just uh, I don't know if we do that in Australia. I know we, I've, I've done some um, anti-terrorist driver training by with the guys that that train the military, but I don't know if if we do yeah, so much of
2: that private. I, I think yeah, certainly my, my experience in Australia is that everything is really it's done in house, in house, con- yeah, controlled in house. With the US is very very different. So, yeah, it's um, the free market, right? Yeah. <laughs> also you know, on the training side, PFC do a lot, and they run a lot of courses for law enforcement. Offices. So again, law enforcement's very different over there. It's very yeah. fractured. There's state police departments, there's local sheriff's departments, there's city yeah. police departments, um, and they all have different management, um, different training structures. Yeah. Um, a lot of the police departments or police officers that I know personally in the US, they a lot of them get a, a training budget every year to go spend with a private training organisation. Right. So, wow. Very different to Australia.
0: So you ended up in the
2: states doing training? Yeah. So I uh, look. I spent quite a bit of time over there. I my, my business back here was still sort of running away, but I, I put right. a general manager in here, and then I, I ran away Walked overseas away. For, yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, because I was enjoying it so much. Um, I was lucky enough with PFC that they, I guess, like what they saw with me. So they put me through their formal bodyguard training, their protective security officer training. Then they put me through their high-threat bodyguard training, their yeah. driver programs, their military training. Um, I came out the other end and was helping as an assistant trainer on some of their courses and then eventually went through all of their instructor programs for all of those, all of those courses as well.
0: So if we look down your list of uh, what you're certified as a, a PFC instructor, it's uh, tactical firearms, handgun and patrol rifle, protective security operations, uh, high-threat protective security operations protective vehicle operations, and defensive tactics. Yeah. So you were training all those topics for PFC? For, for PFC, in both the in the
2: States and in Asia.
0: Uh, uh, and in Asia as well. Yeah. That was my next question.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to the Philippines from the States then? Uh, well, it's a, again, it's a long story. We actually ran a, a course on the in the Philippines, I think, in 2008, And it was on the old uh, Clark Air Force Base in the the Philippines. And the course went very well. We met a lot of locals. Um, We quickly identified that there was potentially a good market in terms of protective security yeah Uh, not so much in terms of providing training for law enforcement and military Mm -hmm. because obviously being a developing country they don't have a lot of money in the budget for trainings right in fact we saw some pretty sad stories over there particularly in law enforcement in terms of the resources they had yeah they're getting by on the smell of an oily rag right yeah i mean we often tell a story of a a SWAT unit that operated near us—that you know, sometimes they'd have to um, go around the guys and try to borrow some money from everybody to put some uh, a gas in the tank oh, to go attend a geez. job. Right. That's kind of how bad it was, and they were just virtually had no ammunition. You know, there's talk of them going going to jobs where they wouldn't even have a full magazine of of rounds in their M16s, right. and they were they were operating old M16s, literally the old Vietnam era M16s. Yeah. Oh, gee. So, yeah, so the training budget there is probably not, wasn't, up, wasn't much, not up to scratch with no, the American no. kind of budget. But where the training budget was, was in protective security. So yeah, there okay. are. Is that a, private? Yeah, all private. All right. private. So there is a. there is a The ruling class, like, okay, is one way to describe it. The ruling class in the Philippines yeah. generally are high net wealth individuals and their families. Yes. Um, and they. They do have a lot of issues with kidnap. Yes. There. So there's there's some people that would say that behind a couple of South American cities, Manila would be one of the worst places in the world in terms of kidnap. Would that be families that would prov- that would have uh, essentially bodyguard services? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So what we actually did with PFC is we set up PFC uh, Asia Pacific, and um, I actually moved over there. The plan was to move over there for two or three years. We built a a training center, so a full-on tactical firearms training center, where we taught protective security skills, driving, uh, driver skills. Right down to room clearing, building evacuation, all that, uh, all that that sort of stuff. That sounds like a heavenly job. Yeah, like a total boys' <laughs> own like, adventure kind of it, it, thing. It, it totally was. Um, we hired, um, we we then hired, trained, and deployed what we call protective security officers, but what you know most people call bodyguards. So yeah, interesting group of guys. I'll spoil it for choice there. I tended to hire only ex-Philippine uh, Navy SEALs or right. ex-Philippine Army Scout Rangers. Okay. So, and there so were a lot of them about, so... They would have been able to afford bullets at that level, that, hopefully, right? Yeah, they have had some reasonable training. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that you could compare... The Philippine Navy SEALs to the US Navy SEALs, <laughs> right? Right, but they were—they're the cream of the crop, there. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, yeah. like they were tough guys, and they were used to living tough and living rugged. And yeah, um, as a as, as bodyguard in the Philippines, it's not um, it's not and skittles. It's a pretty tough life. Yeah, think, so. yeah. It's the real deal. Yeah. As, as as in, you know, you be could be deployed with a very very wealthy family at their family mansion, but you'll probably sleep on a straw mattress in the garage, you're, right. you're not going to get a comfortable bed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not quite like the movies. It's not
0: like the think. movies, yeah. no. It's not like the bodyguard movie. So um, from here, things get really interesting, and this is where the story really starts to to get gritty. Things took a turn for the worse in that facility. Can you just take us back to uh, probably the
2: start of where things started to turn a bit south there? You know, it's a really interesting place, the Philippines. There are a lot of very interesting people there. That you know, there's now no doubt that they have a lot of issues with. With corruption, not only at a political level, but at a, you know at the local law enforcement level, and even you know within the within the military. But look, without going into too much detail, I got approached one day by a couple of I guess you'd call them local politicians who ran a couple of high government, federal law enforcement agencies. Right, and essentially they wanted to muscle in on the business, take it take it over as such. Ah. Uh-huh. Um, so it must
0: have been a good outfit if the, the government's starting to get interested the, in, in what you're doing.
2: Yeah, well, they, they, of course, they weren't operating on behalf of the government. They, <laughs> they had government badges, but obviously they were not it for, them, for themselves. So, yeah. Um, I, you know, so they, they tried to muscle in. I guess I made the mistake of saying no. Right. And, uh, wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. Right, over there. Yeah, yeah. O- over there, wrong answer. These two, uh, look, and I won't mention names, these two, but these two officials mm. who were, they had uh, presidential appointments. Mm-hmm. So they were, um, you know, they were pretty powerful, mm. had a badge and they could virtually do whatever they wanted. But, you know, both of them had been pardoned and had been serving life sentences for homicide so, right, you know you, that wouldn't happen in Australia. It <laughs> just wouldn't happen in Australia. Right, right. So, um, but anyway, look to cut a long story short. I said no. Uh, they weren't happy. Mm. One day we were running a a course at our training centre. We were actually running it for the um, Human Rights Commission. Right. Um, we were training, or we were helping, assisting in the training of crime scene investigators. Right. So we'd actually mocked up. Crime scenes at, at our facility it was something a little bit different. Mm. Um, but anyway, we were we were raided by these uh, government people, and uh, consequently, I ended up in jail for a while. So, when you say raided,
0: was it a guns drawn, shouting kind of affair? Yeah, for, yeah, it was a full on, full on
2: raid. So, paramilitary group, right. with Badges. So there you are, another day at work. Yeah, forty five <laughs> gun in my poked in my head. Yeah, right. Bashed, bashed about with a shotgun a few times.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, so it was, a, it was a scary deal, right? Like it's a, it's it's not something you go to work expecting to be raided by paramilitary and belted by a, a
2: forty-five.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, no, it was it. Yeah, it was a tough time. I I I didn't actually think I would survive that night. These guys were pretty angry.
0: Yeah, I'd have
2: to say that there's probably a ninety percent chance they were drugged out of their brains as well. Jeez, cause that's the sort of people they were. Right. Um, and, you know, they had a whole uh, group of law enforcement officers tagged along right. and were just doing what they were told.
0: How many people would have been in that raid? There were a couple of dozen. So a couple of dozen people. So you got a so small army coming in. Coming in for me, yeah, that's <laughs> Most it. Most likely on drugs yeah. and, and not being friendly about about the whole situation. So you
2: had the class in there. Um, yeah, it was it was dispersed. All of the uh, we also had a, car- a current group of bodyguards who were going through their training with us. I think there were eight of them. They were also arrested as well. Right, and I was shipped off to a, a prison in Manila that night. So they put you in handcuffs. Yeah, oh, yeah, I was in yeah, totally. I was in in, in handcuffs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was taken up to a facility. I like they were rattling off all these charges. I didn't really understand what they were talking about. They were calling me a terrorist. Right. They were calling me a gun runner. Right. They were accusing me of um, plotting to assassinate the president of the Philippines and just like crazy stuff I couldn't believe. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what was happening. Um, I was taken up to, uh, so I was driven up from where we were based, which was probably two hours um, north of Manila. Yeah. I was taken back down in Manila to... Um, The so that it was one of their maximum security prisons. It's one where they have where they hold foreign nationals. Yeah, and I was in their terrorist wing. Oh my god, so I was taken in there about one in the morning. Um, the the prison was all closed up, but they took me actually out to the back one of the back courtyards and I was put in a small, a small steel box, like a dog box. Right, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't lie down. It was sort of one of those little tiny cages. Right, I was locked in there for the night.
0: Uh, so you're in another country, and the the officials have grabbed you in a violent manner and accused you of terrorist uh, activities. Activities, thrown you in a dog box at one a.m. Where does it go from there?
2: My my partner, my Philippines partner, um, had witnessed it all, and luckily for me, she managed to avoid being caught up in the net as well. Right, um, and then how did she not be taken? Um, look, she was there when it all happened. Um, she uh, caused a bit of a ruckus with the police officers. Right. And I think that some of the police some of the local police officers who'd been dragged into it realizing that there was something wrong with all of this. Right. Uh, kind of left her alone. Okay. Um and then she was over she actually spent the night um tracking down the New Zealand ambassador and getting hold of anybody that she could get a hold of to try and try and help out. So. Yeah. Oh, and, good on her all yeah right. that's what happened there so well, i had a pretty rough night that night i got bashed around a little bit um what when you say bashed around how how was that uh well they were trying to get me to confess straight away like right. i think what their plan was was to throw up all these crazy charges yeah. have me be so scared that i confess and then just allow me to be deported out of the country that's kind of right. what they were looking for okay um so I, Got beaten up a little bit, right? Bashed around a little bit. Prison guards or these? Uh, um, or both.
1: Okay, both.
0: everyone yeah. was in on the act. <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> so,
2: what happened after that? What happened in the morning after? Ah, uh, well, time from uh, then on. Look, I, I, I totally refused to plead guilty to anything. I just yeah. just held my ground. Yeah, I kind of held my nerve as best I could. Yeah. Um. The next day, I was brought out of the dog box mm-hmm. sometime in the afternoon. and oh, was. Um, but I, I realised afterwards it was only because the New Zealand ambassador had turned up and that's why... <laughs> yeah, it was a bad my, look. It's a, <laughs> that's it. So I was brought out. Well, I started getting feedback fairly quickly. I had... Um, had Filipino friends and sort of business acquaintances that I, I knew there, um, and they were starting to make contact with me. Uh, after I'd spent time with the New Zealand ambassador or their representative from the New Zealand consulate Mm. they just wanted to be sure in their mind that i wasn't the crazy terrorist yeah and i like once we were able to talk through with him what had happened my partner also got onto my lawyer that i had there and um they were also at the at the prison um from then on i was treated i guess with a little more respect and put in a normal cell right for the rest of the week that i was there okay
0: you're Mm. starting to become a bit too hard for them to deal with, it's not as easy as
2: they thought it was going to be. Um, Because of the training and the work we were doing, I did have some contacts in the Philippines National Police and the Philippines military. A guy who actually worked for me in the business was, he was a former Army Scout Ranger, but he was involved in the NBI or the National Bureau of Investigation, right? the Philippines version of the FBI, and he certainly knew me well, and he knew that we weren't involved in terrorism. Um, So within a day or two, I was told that the... Philippines military the Philippines national police and the um the counterterrorism units in the Philippines had looked at my story realized there was no story yeah. and weren't interested in pursuing any case okay so that was that was good from that point of view. Which leaves you how long in jail before? Oh, I was well. That happened on about day two or three. I was still there okay. for for a week before I was allowed to be. It was called bail, but it was I think it was meant to be house arrest was what it was all about. So right. I was removed from jail and allowed to go home, but had to report like a bail suspect okay. on a weekly basis to the uh, national police headquarters. So, were you in Manila during that time? Yeah, so I was in Manila during that time. A strange thing with the Philippine law, because all of the official departments in the Philippines, like the National Police and by nobody wanted to press charges. Yeah, um, what actually happened was that then these two politicians then chose to turn them into a civil case, which right. they can do in the Philippines. Okay, so they the file the charges, and there were a number of them. There was there was terrorism. Yep. there was training terrorists. Yeah. It was just some crazy idea that I was plotting to assassinate the president of the Philippines. Yeah, um, and I found out in the end how that came about, but now I'll tell you that story in a second. Okay, um, and that I was gun running, and that I was had overstayed a visa and all sorts of things. So, um, so they were able to continue to press those charges. So, did civilly. they?
0: Did they think that this, as a civil
2: matter, it's going to be less likely to cause an international incident than? Um, no, it was because the 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 department that they worked for refused to press charges, <laughs> so they had no choice. And in order to save face, they right. took out the charges. Yeah, yeah. So it was a yeah. face
0: saving method, method rather than than yeah. anything else. Because yeah. so they're still going hard, just using a different yeah. Yeah. method. Yes, that's, it. that's oh, it. Okay, that's it. Yeah. So, assassinating the president.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, that, the reason that story came about was um, the, the Philippines, I guess, is a bit famous for having, um, well, not, well, not quite military coups, but sort of attempted military coups in the past. And what I discovered there was that one of the former Navy SEALs who was working for me at the time um, had been involved with a group who rebelled. Yeah i don't know 10 or 20 years ago right and the general that had led that rebellion was still serving time in jail right so they tried to put two two together and Uh suggested that i was training these former navy seals to then break out the, oh, the general the, the former general oh, in order like the to now in order to overthrow the government yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great i mean it's it's just <laughs> you can laugh now right you can but... laugh now but it was not very funny at the time no way no it wasn't very funny yeah, at the
0: it's time yeah harrowing at the time right yeah That's and
2: right. for look for my um kids who were living back in New Zealand it was a it was a terrible time for them oh, I and, I can imagine. A and terrible wife my family there. and my my business contacts were you know <laughs> people were wondering what on earth was going on yeah but, um yeah pfc tried to do everything they could but it was it was very hard Uh, you know foreign company and yeah basically uh once i was released from jail we then went through their judicial process where the prosecutor invited me to give statements on on all of the charges the Mm -hmm. people filing the charges put together their cases um and then the and then the prosecutor uh, his role was to review all of the evidence and decide whether or not I had a case to answer. Right. Um, and just it's unfortunate, but that took about a year. Oh, Jesus. So um, you're under this house arrest? Yeah, I, I had my passports were being held, um, yeah. so I couldn't leave the country. I, I, as I said before, we'd had um, some relationships with some people within the, the Philippines National Police. About two days into my release, I got word from them that there was an intelligence report that there was a contract out on my life. Okay. um, And we guessed it was because it was easier for me to go away. This is more face-saving methodologies going on here, right? Yeah. So, So... we just swing into action and put into practice everything that I've been teaching the, for a while. The good thing is, yeah,
0: the, the, if you've trained the guys correctly, then you're in good hands, right? You've, yeah, yeah.
2: That's it. So, I had my own. Um, I had my own team for a year. Right. Um, interestingly enough, the um, the Philippines National Police actually supplied me two protective security officers. That's okay. What they they do, um, so I had to mix them in my own team. How many people were in your Protective team? Um, I had six on at any one time, so eight eight in total. We've involved okay. two on sort of rest days. Okay. Um, and that was mainly because I was still trying to do things with PFC, so it meant getting out and about. I was still running, trying to run teams that were out protecting. Right. So back, to, Yeah, trying to work at the same, same time, time as being mm.
0: kind of tried for trying to assassinate the, the, um, the president.
2: The president, of yeah. Sort of yeah. Jeez. While being having a contract on your life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we um, we spent a year playing some very interesting games. Um, we we took a, a big house in the, one of the gated subdivisions in Manila. Yeah, um, a, a big walled property. Yeah, um, we had another property, and I just I moved around a lot. Okay, in, in a year, so yeah. played a lot of very interesting games. Whenever I had to go across town, we'd leave the compound in one vehicle. We'd go to one of half a dozen different locations we used to use. I'd get out. Go in the front door of a shopping centre, go out another door, get in another vehicle and continue on. Right. So we, we kind of played those games. All every the cat day. and mouse stuff.
0: Yeah. For a year.
2: For a year. Always
0: looking over your shoulder and. Always. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think that affected you?
2: Uh, It, it was tough. It was, yeah. It was very, very tough. So, because, you know, if there's one thing that I'd, I'd sort of learnt from training and we're working with PFC, that is that if if somebody really wants to get you, They will get you eventually. Right, yeah. They get the President of of the
0: United States, right? It's not possible. How were you sleeping?
2: Uh, Not well. Yeah. Not well. I sort of went through uh, a lot of stages in that year. One stage lost a lot of weight. Next stage gained a lot of weight. Right. Uh, Very stressful. Any of the uh, discipline stuff from the martial arts, do you think, helped you in that time? Yeah, I think think during the night of the raid and the, the guns and the beat up and... Um, I managed to stay relatively calm. Yeah. When I think about it now, I'm quite surprised that I did. Right. Stay calm. But then it was also surreal. Yeah.
0: What do you do? You don't know how you're going to react until you're put under those situations, right? You can, yeah. You know, a lot of people say, I would have done this, I would have done that. But yeah. Un- until you're in those situations, you, you don't know how you're going to react. So Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you reacted the right way. Yeah. You didn't inflame things, you know what I mean? No. So a year goes by where you're looking over your shoulder and you've got a eight man protective team and you're <laughs> you're shuffling houses and cars and vehicles. sleepless nights and God knows what else stress family kids life
2: not really making a lot of money but spending a lot of money to stay alive yeah and stay protected um, yeah you know having to buy new vehicles all the time swapping oh, vehicles geez. yeah you know a Ford Explorer one day a Ford Expedition the next uh, right. a pickup truck. Two weeks later it's just like oh, rotating geez. all the time so you you're trying not to have patterns so you know it was it was, um, it was a difficult time there's a really difficult decision I had to make when eventually and it took as I say it took a year that the prosecutor came back and said there's no case to answer there's no evidence <sighs> just, there's nothing you're you're clear yeah you're free yeah so I had to make the decision then do I stay yeah and try and keep this business going mm. or do I just get out of dodge and in the end it didn't really take me that long to decide i probably needed to get out of dodge if i stayed there i think they would have eventually got me well
0: it doesn't mean the contract goes away right just because you're found Mm. there were no charges to face no it doesn't mean you haven't got this uh corrupt government official still after you trying to save face and maybe revenge and for
2: making him look silly or or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, was, I was totally fed up with the pressure of, you know, you caught it looking over your shoulder. But if you can imagine, if you've seen places like Manila on TV, the traffic mm. and the traffic jams and freaking out every time a motorcycle drives up yeah, next, absolutely. To your, next to your vehicle and especially uh, two guys on a on a motorbike because that's their classic hit method Assassination methodology, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. I just felt in the end that I needed to get out of there. So, yeah. So I got out of there.
0: <laughs> really?
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: really the only option, right? You've got staying. Staying isn't not really yeah, no. what, for what. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: So that brings you back to Melbourne. Yeah, I came. I came back to Melbourne. Went back to New Zealand actually for a few months to okay. spend a bit of time with my kids. Yeah, but they're grown up, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time with them. Um, and then came back to Melbourne and sort of took the reins back of the of the business that I had and try to sort of get on with a normal life again. Yeah, yeah. So this is importing. Uh, no, marketing? this this was the marketing licensing. Yeah, yeah okay. Was, so working with brands. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I, I guess I fell into straight away once I got back, and I, when I first started doing things with PFC, with the military units they used to have uh, coming in and training, they would come in for seven-day, 14-day, or 21-day courses. Yeah. And so as part of their, even though they were getting combat training, um, they had to be PT'd. So yeah. was... PT was a part of the regular schedule, Um, and back in sort of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, PFC adopted CrossFit as their methodology. Yeah. As um, as a lot of sort of US law enforcement and military uh, units that adopted CrossFit, they adopted CrossFit as well. And so I was doing a little bit of CrossFit, I'd call it bushcock CrossFit in the Philippines. Yeah. A little bit of little bit of handmade gear. Yeah. But when I came back to Australia, I sort of got stuck into CrossFit big time. And and then you. Opened a CrossFit facility after continuing the entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> <coughs> we opened a CrossFit facility here yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah, it was interesting. I like I call myself the reluctant coach. I never really meant to open a CrossFit gym. Right. Um, but w- once I'd come back to Australia, there was, an, there was another guy living in Australia who was similar to me. He had the similar story with uh, working with PFC, and we were really good friends. Yeah. Um. So we, together, we ran a few PFC courses here in Australia, although yeah. it's, it's very hard to run our type of training yeah. in Australia. We, we did a little bit with the federal police. We did a little bit with Border Force. Um, a little bit with corrections. But my friend here who had some uh, friends in Victoria Place had asked me whether I could help out a couple of uh, officers that lived near me with some um, physical training, some fitness training, Mm -hmm. some strength training, and then also with some defensive tactics training. So I kind of started doing that as a favour one night in my garage. Right. But within about a month, I had about, I don't know, I think it was 25 police officers. Right, right. <laughs> Training so in found my You, you d- didn't yeah, find it. Right? Yeah, in my little double garage. So yeah, <laughs> got out of control pretty quickly and I, I I was kind of forced to make a decision. Do I just stop this because it's out of control or do I go rent something a little bit bigger and maybe open a, a CrossFit gym? Yeah. And that's what I did. That's so what you did. I opened gym, yeah. well,
0: What gets me is you've been through so much. That's It's a, a pretty harrowing story about being raided and, and arrested and potentially- Kind of having a hit on you for a year and stuff like that. A lot of people could have come back home and folded. You know, they could have said, "Well, that was an awful experience. I'm totally broken. Um, I can't do anything." Uh, you seem to have picked up and gone. I'm going to do a new business now, and <laughs> I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep ploughing on. What would you attribute that to?
2: Uh, I've always been really resilient all my life. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was always very entrepreneurial, and I've started. Businesses that didn't work and yeah. you know fell over, but I'm, I'm very quick to pick myself up, dust myself off, and and keep on going. And um, I think you know, looking back on it a year or two later, I, I certainly what happened in the Philippines certainly had an impact on me. Certainly psychologically, maybe mentally, I probably I didn't realise that maybe in the last few years I'd suffered. Uh, a little bit here and there from depression yeah. didn't really realize it at the time but yeah. now that i think about it had a few dark periods yeah but but other than that i've always been the sort of person that's pressed on right um i've kind of i've had a few tragedies in my life yeah um i've lost two two partners two so, yeah i've lost two, two oh, of them. i didn't realize uh, it's uh, awful i'm sorry to hear it but it's f- uh um, yeah. m- my first partner was i was i was very young i was um i was 19 and she was 18 And she died of natural causes. And then um, I mentioned before I had another partner and she died when I was in my mid forties. So she'd had um, problems with cancer earlier and required some heart surgery and unfortunately didn't survive the the heart surgery. So I've had to deal with it in the past and kind of the best way that I find to deal with things is not to dwell on them, but to just just get up and keep moving. To take action and keep moving forward. Keep moving forward, yeah.
0: Uh, Could you attribute that to maybe living a lifestyle that is, I mean, you've obviously been very active and do you think you kind of learn things from maybe doing that kind of uh, pushing yourself further physically and you you kind of understand where your limits are and how to keep moving forward when things are difficult? And
2: do you think like the orienteering and maybe the rugby and the martial arts? Definitely. I wouldn't say it's the competitive side of it. It's more about... It's more about setting little goals and achieving them. Whether yeah. that little goal is, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna I'm gonna run for five k's, or I'm gonna throw some weight around, or I'm gonna do something. You just get up and, and do it. Right. Mm. It's that kind of discipline that goes with yeah. doing any kind of, uh, I guess, physical pursuit. Shoot, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's I think a big part of it is being um able to help others as well and teach others. I've always got a lot out of that. Yeah. Um, with PFC I, I I I got a great kick out of helping to train, you know, police officers and or military and or basically the good guys to do the job that we yeah. need them to do. Yeah. I'm very respectful of law enforcement and and the military um and, and all first responders and I you know what they do for us. And I would always go out of my way to help. So I guess I always found reasons to help others rather than dwell on my own problems. And I think that's that's one
0: living a life of gratitude and service is, is, is one of those keys to kind totally. of moving forward. And, um, you know, they often will recommend to people, oh, if, if you have depression, that maybe you thought about volunteering and helping other people because, yep. I mean, it's just kind of one of the keys that gets people yeah. going again is to, is to yep. give to other people and you kind of get more out of it than you give yep. to the people.
2: Yeah.
0: That sounds like what you've been involved with is... Um, it's helping other people and that's probably what helps you get through those dark times. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. uh, You've got every, I mean, people, any one of those things could, could take people out like losing, losing one partner, losing two partners, you know, let alone losing two partners and then being jailed for a year on trying to kill the president and, you know, all all (laughs) that kind of stuff is huge. And then also now nutrition. You're also studying at the moment. And I know you've done um, like weight loss courses for people
2: as well. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the things I always try to do is whatever I focus on, I focus on and I try to learn – I identify straight away that I don't know what I don't know. So I try to find out what it is I yeah. don't know yeah. and try to learn as much as I can. And um, I'd, I'd always been sort of in that fitness area and training and sport kind of all of my life. But once I adopted it seriously, as an opening a CrossFit gym, I went and I did my certificate three and certificate four, you know, personal training, mm-hmm. gym management. And then I tried to study everything I could find on running a gym and on fitness. And it was really interesting that I, when I went into the owning of the CrossFit gym, I was very gung-ho at that stage on CrossFit. And it was all about train really hard six days a week, yeah. if you can, an hour in the morning and an hour at night. And mm. you know, if you can't do that and you're not motivated enough or you're a loser and you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Gung-ho CrossFit. Yeah, real gung-ho <laughs> yeah sort of stuff. Yeah, um, But you know, over time, I, I, I started to realise that that Really, only worked for a very small percentage of the population. And the minute in my CrossFit gym, when I'd opened the doors to the public and yeah. it wasn't just law enforcement any longer, I started to get like a lot of very normal people mm. with very normal issues around weight and eating and exercise mm. um, coming in. And w- what I discovered was I was trying to put, you know, square pegs in round holes. Right. You, could, you kind of got elite in. level athletic training. To Joe Blow off the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was a period there where I worked with an American company doing six-week challenges. So I developed a training program for six weeks. I worked with their nutrition programs, which Mm -hmm. was essentially just giving people a a six-week eating plan, shopping plan and all of that. And when we first started we were getting you know great success with people yeah. they were they were losing an average person in the course so they didn't do a lot but they did stick to the training they came in you know three times a week and they did eat as close as possible to the schedule mm. you know, they'd lose five kilos no yeah. problem if they really stuck at it they could lose 10 That's maybe huge. 11 12 kilos yeah um but what i noticed was that three months later that weight, that weight had drifted back again. And I yeah. and I just think, why, 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 why? When yeah. you talk to them, you realize that the program I put them on for six weeks was not how they normally lived. Mm-hmm. So they were making an exception, like a crash diet, mm-hmm. for six weeks. As soon as that six weeks is over, they reward themselves by going back to the way they used to eat before. Right. So yeah. I realized that a lot of those things and, and really a lot of the programs that I see out there in the fitness industry are really... Very short-term fixes. Yeah, okay. And they don't really fix the long-term problems. And on the side of that, I've always had had a lot of interest, and in, I'd followed a blog site for years now called Mark's Daily Apple. Yeah, Mark Sissons. and he has um, what he calls the uh, Primal Blueprint. Yeah, or blueprint for living, which is based on a, um, our ancestral hunter gatherers, the way they ate, the way they moved, etc. And as I got more and more interested in it, I began to experiment with some of his thoughts on some of the people that I was training. And I found that- That's good. It's a good it was, laboratory to have. Yeah. And that we tended to get people to head in the right direction.
0: Okay. Yes. So what you're looking for is, I guess, like a, a mindset shift of the people, not not a temporary thing. You're kind of looking for a mindset. yeah, Like a little jog of the
2: mindset. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost getting people to realize, because a lot of people look at, you know the fitness industry, mm. and they think they've got to go to the gym, they've got to sweat hard, and like no pain, no gain, six times a week, blah blah blah, six a.m. You know all that sort of yeah. hard, hard stuff. And the reality is, they don't actually need that at all to right. be super fit. Um And what I noticed uh, running the gym was that I'd have people come in and they'd be they'd be really serious about losing weight, training hard. They probably hadn't done anything in twenty years right, so they'll yeah. take it on they'll they'll smash you know something like cross it really hard mm. they be been a, a world of hurt for the first couple of weeks yeah. then their body body sort of slowly gets used to it. Some of them will start to drop a little bit of weight. Um, But what I find is that by the three-month mark, they're starting to get some serious injuries. And by the six-month mark, they just drop off the wagon. Like Like, your
0: tendons aren't conditioned, your joints aren't conditioned. You can't be sedentary for 40 years and then go and smash Olympic lifting. Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
2: Yeah. absolutely. And my belief was the same as many, not only in the fitness industry, but outside of the fitness industry as well, was that 80% of body composition is about how much you exercise. R- that, that's a belief out there? It's totally a belief out there. Yeah. It's totally, it's like 80% exercise. But the reality is it's like, it's literally 5%. I was exercise. going to ask
0: you what you thought the percentages were. I think it's like 5%. 5% percent is injury. physical activity, and 95% yeah. nutrition? Or uh, well, no,
2: I, 80, I think 80% is what you eat, Yeah. when you eat it, and how you eat it. That's okay. okay. About 80% is your nutrition. Yeah. Well about 5%. Is your stress level mm-hmm. about five percent is exercise or activity? Yeah, and probably 10 percent is sleep. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I believe. I know a lot of people might not agree with that. There's certainly some evidence around that supports that. Yeah, um, there's lots of lots of issues in society at the moment about lack of sleep, uh, overstress, yeah, bad diet. What do you do for sleep personally? Do you have any kind of uh, well, my routines? target is always to try and get eight hours yeah. of good quality sleep. I struggled with that a little bit when I was running the gym in the early days, yeah. you know, early starts, late nights. I found that for, for me if I can get a good 8 hours sleep, I'm in good shape. Yeah. If I don't get eight hours sleep, it catches up on me pretty quickly. Yeah. Also uh, also with um, you know nutrition's been a big big thing for me so even though i was uh training you know six days a week sometimes two or three times a day yeah and at my age that's a that's a lot of training Absolutely. like too much training yeah um Athlete, like olympic athletes probably don't train that much you know, yeah, yeah a lot of stuff yeah that's cross for this for huh? <laughs> <laughs> but i still was struggling to get my nutrition right i've Certainly, changed that approach these days. I've stepped back quite a bit. Yeah, um, I, I don't actually own the CrossFit gym anymore. I sold that recently, right? And now I, the the training I do tends to be in my own gym. I have you know a bit of I have some Olympic weightlifting gear and yeah. but basically just kettlebells, dumbbells, a, yeah. a, an old homemade sandbag, yeah. you know, an old weighted plate, a few bits and pieces, and I'll tend to just train maybe three or four times a week, short workouts. You know try to lift something heavy a couple yep. of times a week try to get some sort of sprint work in once a week whether yeah. that's on a rower or on a bike or, yep. or running and then just generally moving a lot and it's interesting that doing that I actually feel healthier and more fit <laughs> than when I was training six <laughs> then days whether you're flogging
0: yourself stupid, stupid right yeah. 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 yeah 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 there's a lovely balance to kind of strike there yep. um, now you're a man of a certain age as am I. Do you have uh, injuries
2: that you have to train around? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, look, um, I had a few martial arts injuries that I probably carried all my life. Teaching defensive tactics is a bit like doing BJJ. It's very tough yeah. on the body. Yeah. I've had my rotator cuff, my left arm torn a few times. Right. Yeah. Um, it still gives me issues with, you know, pull-ups or, or chin-ups. Yeah. Um, I have a huge amount of problem trying to snatch a bar overhead. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I modify my workouts. Yeah. There was a time when I was very frustrated that yeah. I couldn't snatch properly or get as much over my head as I'd like. Yeah. But now I realise why. Well, I I don't actually whether I can snatch a bar over my head or not doesn't dictate a how fit I am, b how strong I am, or c how long I'm going to live.
0: I I think I came to a, a, a realization the same. And the reason I ask is because young people, you know, they probably don't have as many injuries, and they can train, 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 train. Yeah. And then as the injuries accumulate or kind of worsen as you get older. You do get frustrated because you can't do what you yeah. used to do or, or what you want to do,
2: yeah.
0: and the only way to kind of reconcile with yourself is to accept that and keep training and yeah. keep training around it. And I, I know I—I I don't know how long ago that was for me, but a few years ago I was just super frustrated. And yeah. but it's a part of life, and you just got to incorporate your know, kind of injuries into into your training. And there's a lot you can still do around those things. It's not the end of the world. But if you stop training. That is the end of the world, you know?
2: Totally. Yeah, yeah you just gotta you've just gotta learn to listen to your body and just and just work around it. If some days my shoulder feels more sore than others, I'm I'm not gonna lift anything. I'll do body weight or I'll Yeah. Do a bit of rowing or running or I just I will listen to my body. You know, three or four years ago I just push through smash through. I'd it, strap yeah. it up with some tape.
0: Yeah and just push through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just recovering from a shoulder surgery at the moment and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm yeah, I'm doing what I can do and it's slowly but surely getting better but um
2: yeah you've just got to accept those limitations at some stage and and move on yeah yeah so one of the things i'm doing at the moment is on i'm i'm completing a a health coaching certification through through primal health in in the u.s it's been very very interesting yeah so learning a little bit about their take on um on nutrition yeah um and what they call primal eating which is i guess a little bit different from Paleo eating. Do you think
0: primal eating is less prescriptive than paleo eating? D- yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, again, it's more of a conceptual thing, like a mindset thing, as opposed to a set of rules.
2: Yeah. And I look, I, I still, um, Work with some clients now and help some clients around sort of nutrition and lifestyle and paleo prescription can be very very tight and very, mm. it means often you have to miss out on too much yeah and when you have to miss out on things it's okay for a little while but in the long run it's not and you can miss out on some good things as well to- right oh totally like, I, look I had pizza for dinner last night
0: yoga you know, is out yeah uh, uh, that might be great for you yeah you, might, you know you might be able to tolerate it and you only get good things out of it um, yeah what haggis right it's sort of the, yeah. It's all the kind of um, vital organs that you need to get into yeah. your life, but it's got oats yeah. in it, so you know yeah. it's out for some people because it's not paleo. So yeah, yeah. it can. I've, I find it can be. Well, it depends what what you follow, but yeah, it
2: can be too prescriptive, and you can miss yeah. out on a lot of actually good stuff there. Yeah, I think I think kind of my experience with most people is that the biggest the biggest issue with nutrition is just simply the amount of carbohydrate we have in our diet. It's massive, isn't it? Like, and every every time um, I. If I'm successful at helping somebody who wants to lose weight, yeah. It's because I've worked with them to lower the amount of carbohydrate. Yeah. That's like it's that simple. Yeah. Smashing a big
0: bowl of pasta with a smear of tomato
2: paste on the top, you know, and Yeah. Yeah, Well I think I think if you know the average I'll call it the sad diet, S A D they call that the standard American diet. You can also call it the standard Australian diet. Yeah. So Big bowl of cereal on toast. Mm. It's a lot of sugar and a lot of carbohydrate. Yeah. Go to lunch. Have the Subway sandwich. So sandwiches. Yeah. Big carbohydrate. Lots more sugar. Get yeah. home. Have the. You know. You might have the meat and veg, but then you've got all the. I don't know. Potato yeah. or rice or more bread again. Bread on the side. It's just yeah. Just carb, 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 carb.
0: And um, it just kind of buggers up your insulin and all kinds it, of horrible things to your body. It does
2: all sorts of terrible things. It's all body, processed. So, so. Yeah. And when you think yeah. about when you think about the hundreds of years of our evolution, where we hardly ate any carbohydrate at yeah. all, we essentially lived on animal product and a little bit of vegetable Foraged. or the odd bit of uh, fruit that we could scrounge. Yeah, um, we weren't actually designed to eat that amount of carbohydrate. Yeah, and think.
0: it's got deleterious effects to to, to health. I mean. Modern lifestyle diseases. They're calling uh, they're calling dementia another kind of form of diabetes now because they're kind of linking to so lifestyle to disease. insulin yeah. production and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. and interestingly enough, they're turning around dementia in certain cases because the the neural pathways in the brain have been burned out because they because the brain runs on sugar and then they yeah. get the brain to run on fats and it creates yeah. goes to other neural yeah. pathways and you know yeah. they're turning dementia around yeah. nutritionally. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things. Um, ADHD, all those that they're finding now linked to
2: excessive carbohydrate consumption, and, and therefore excessive insulin production. Yeah, there, which yeah. is really the, the 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 problem of our of our age. So
0: it's a good thing. It's mm. a good. I mean, it's I mean, it's good that you're out helping people and making people better. And um, I think it's a good thing that this knowledge is becoming more overground. I guess. I mean, there's a lot of resistance yeah. out there. Yeah still I mean if you what's that guy Pete uh, Pete Evans who does the stuff the paleo stuff in Australia I mean yeah uh, as soon as he says something there's a, m- a there's watch. a hundred hundred publications out there waiting to, to yeah. jump on his back and everyone yeah. wants to I told you so about stuff yeah. so
2: yeah
0: it's confronting for people to face their their nutrition religion that they've had since they've been growing up yeah you know? yeah what can be wrong with wheat beaks
2: yeah, totally. Oh well, every ad on TV says that Wheat is great, right? Yeah, the, yeah. That's, and that's you know that's part of the issue. Ah, uh, it's part that, of the issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could we could go on about it. Jesus we, fed the I mean, disciples bread, you know? Didn't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like the gambling ads with the little little tiny segment at the end that says "gamble responsibly," but you're still telling <laughs> everybody to gamble. So, "gamble responsibly" would mean not gambling, right? Right. You wouldn't gamble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're getting too political here. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: good. Yeah. I'm happy for it. Mm. I want to ask you another question, real quickly. Um, are you a guy that meditates?
1: Not
2: regularly. Yep. Not as regularly as I should do. I've tried a different, a few different types of meditation and guided meditation over the years. I don't really know why it hasn't stuck with me. Yeah. Because I know when I do meditate, I, I feel a lot better. And I feel like it's something, it's one of those parts of my life that it still needs more work. Yeah, you can do that after the nutrition, right? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. Yeah. But I think with, I, I've always had a pretty crazy and busy lifestyle. And um, at the moment, I'd, I'd sort of identified almost two years ago that my sleep was a problem and I had to fix my sleep. Yeah. And part of that was almost. Well, I've got no time to meditate now because I've got to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's now nine o'clock at night and I've got to yeah, go to bed, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because I'm up at six the next morning. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, definitely a work in progress. See yep. a lot of value, know a lot of people that do meditate regularly and yep. understand that they see great benefits in it. Yeah. And it's, it's something I need to spend more time yeah, on. Yeah, the only
0: reason I ask is, I mean, you went through that kind of harrowing stage and you've, the and the depression and the, the deaths in the relationship and I just, yeah, I could see that some people's answer would have been, oh, you know, I find solace in
2: meditation and then that mm. helps them move forward. Yeah, I think I find that more in people. I like spending time with people, talking with people, helping yeah. people is almost my meditation.
0: Yeah. Um, I, the gym is some people's meditation. You know, yeah. like they go
2: in there and they don't talk yeah. to
0: anybody and they concentrate on
2: yeah.
0: the weights or whatever. So the, I think there's many forms. God, if it can be helping other people, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. You're killing a number of... Words at once with one stone, well, I think we can wrap it up. It's been a really fantastic chat. The story's been amazing. The knowledge has been amazing, and I really appreciate you coming in. Thank, thanks, Doug. It's been great to be here. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Countermeasures podcast. My favourite takeaways from this episode are, again, Tony's quote that, I always found reasons to help others rather than to dwell on my own problems. This is a great countermeasure to the dark times that can follow the loss of loved ones, two in Tony's case, and major life events like, for instance, being jailed in a foreign country and having a contract on your life. I also like his approach to resilience by keeping momentum through having a lot of small goals and ploughing ahead by achieving them. It's a great countermeasure to feeling overwhelmed. It reminds me of the old saying that the only way to eat an elephant is one mouthful at a time. My third favourite takeaway is his breakdown in body composition being 80% nutrition, 5% stress, 5% exercise and 10% sleep, with carbohydrate management being the main countermeasure to obesity. I'd like to thank Derek at Castaway Studios for his assistance in helping get this podcast up and running. Castaway Studios is an affordable and professionally run dedicated podcast studio located in Melbourne and can be found at www castawaystudios.com.au I would also like to thank my good buddy John Barrington for the sexy baritone voiceovers John is a regular voice contributor to The Project, ABC Radio and is a former political reporter for Triple J His details can be found at www.johnbarrington.net Thanks for listening and I'll catch you on episode 2
1: You have been listening to the Countermeasures podcast. In the words of Stoic philosopher Epictetus, you become what you give your attention to. If you yourself don't choose what thoughts and images you expose yourself to, someone else will.